You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and on this week's episode, Tom is talking with author and thought leader David Price on the power of us. David is an author, educator, consultant, and public speaker based in North Yorkshire, UK. He has written two Amazon bestselling books, the latest titled The Power of Us, How We Connect, Act, and Innovate Together. David has led innovation and education projects around the world for the past 20 years, following leadership roles in community, adult, further, and higher education. He is an advisor to the Mastery Transcript Consortium in the United States, Vega Schools in India, the Canadian Educators Association, Learn Life in Spain, and New York-based cultural consultancy Sparks and Honey. In 2009, he was awarded the Order of the British Empire by the Queen for services in education. Let's listen in as Tom talks with David. David Price, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a real treat to have you on. Um, I'd love to know more about where where you grew up, uh, David. Where's Jarrow? Jarrow is a a kind of tiny little town in the northeast of England. And I grew up there during the, the kind of pretty depressed period. Um, Jarrow's famous for one thing, which is in the 1930s, it had an unemployment rate, believe it or not, of 95%. And so 300 of its residents decided they were going to march all the way down to London, which is about 300 miles, to protest at, at the Houses of Parliament. And they were told, we can't do anything. So they had to walk all the way back. And it was kind of typical. Uh, of the Northeast, and it still is. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a greatly working class area. But I, I no longer there. I'm, I'm kind of, right now. I'm in the beautiful Yorkshire Dales, so it's a really scenically stunning part of the world. Is that uh, north of Leeds? Is that where that is? Correct. Yeah, just north of Leeds. Uh, and and David, if I if I ever uh, am able to visit and come over and ride my bike. Um, what areas should I hit north of you there? Would I go to the Lake District or Northumberland or? Oh, no, you don't have to go that far. I mean, just out, literally outside our door is a thing called Armscliff Crag, and that's followed by all these rolling hills. It's, it's just fantastic biking. We're next to a place called Otley, which is must be the biggest biking town in, in the UK. Um, wow. So everywhere you go, you see people on bikes here. Uh, David, you travel all over the world. You're a long ways from, uh, uh, you're five hours from Heathrow. Yeah. Where where do you travel from? Uh, I've only got eight minutes drive to Leeds Bradford International Airport. Ah. Uh, Normally we can look out the window and see the planes taking off, but of course they're not taking off anyway right now. David, you grew up uh, a musician and, and played in a band. What what did you play? I played piano and guitar, quite badly. <laughs> <laughs> but you did it for uh, for a good while. And I I think was that a was that a preview to this um, this life as a freelancer that you've put together, where you've learned to contribute through a series of gigs. Is that yeah. freelancer's mindset? Maybe start as a musician. Yeah, it, uh, that's a really great question, Tom, because I did start as a musician. And, and the, the bit that I, I often feel a bit embarrassed telling people is that in order to do that, the guy that I was performing with, he was still at school. 
And so I managed to persuade him to drop out of school before he'd taken his exams um, and persuaded his parents that that was a good thing. I was so arrogant and precocious then. Um, but, but you're right, in between these two periods of freelance work, I had you know, a, a, a period where I was working in, in organizations, um, in community organizations and in community colleges. And then most latterly, the last real job I had was at um, the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts. Uh, David, about um, seven years ago, you wrote a, a famous book called Open. Uh, I'd love to dig into that a little bit. You really previewed... Um, the new economy. I, I think we've shifted into a, a, a new economy. I call it the innovation economy, the one that followed the, the information age. And I think your book was one of those books that really previewed um, this new age of open source uh, and open talent. Um, maybe you could tell us what led to that, uh, to, to, to writing that book. Sure. Well, that's very kind of you to say so, Tom. I, I, for me, there were, I had two perspectives on this. On the one hand, uh, my two sons were kind of in their adolescent years, uh, and I'd seen them have a, uh, a, a career in education where they probably, truthfully, learned more outside of school than they did in mm -hmm. school. Um, right. and, and they were, they were perfectly content with that. But, but I thought this was a complete missed opportunity. They were doing incredible things you know, in that informal space. Um, and, and it opened my eyes to it. And I thought, why isn't anyone writing about this? This is, this is really significant, you know. And, and it seems to me that in, in a very short period of time, we went from, you know, sharing videos of cats playing the piano to organizing protest marches by, you know, the Parklands, Florida kids. I mean, it, it, the, the, the path has been incredibly accelerated. And I just felt that there was both a, an opportunity and a challenge for formal education because we can pretend this stuff doesn't exist or we can deal with it and we can look at what is it that we can do alongside informal learning that recognizes the power of that learning, but actually still keeps it within the, the, the institution that we call school and college. Because I'm, I'm a great believer in, in those institutions. I just felt that there was they were starting to divide those those two worlds, and I think they still are to a certain extent. Uh, so I I loved how open um, both encouraged people and companies to operate in a transparent and open manner, but it it also outlined the new open economy uh, and how people can. Um, lead really fulfilling and productive lives in the in the uh, freelance and gig uh, space, the, what John Windsor would call the open talent yeah. space. Um, but for that to happen for everybody, it really does require a new social contract that, uh, that, that um, provisions for everyone the opportunity to step into that, uh, that open economy. Is, isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that, that debate, which, which is largely absent in, in public discourse, certainly on this side yeah. of the um, that debate really needs to happen, not least because the economic fallout now of this pandemic is, is going to be 
brutal for young people. And for, for years to come, yeah. And, and, and we, I think on the one hand, we've got an obligation to that, to, to say how can we ensure that, you know, they can live lives of dignity. But I think the other thing is that, they, let's face it, the generation that's currently at high school, they're the ones who are going to have to find a way to fix, you know, the, the emergency, uh, the climate emergency. They're going to have to look at mass migration, which is, you know, only going to get more difficult. There's a whole heap of societal problems. And for me, I think the opportunity lies in the fact that if we could say to people, look, you don't have to do what we've historically called a job, um, but you can help fix some of these really existential problems, then, then we could flip the whole relationship. I, in, in my new right. book, I talk about occupation as being not, not a job, but what occupies us, you know, what, what is it that, that we are really passionate about? And I think somehow we have to find a way to recognize that everything up to now has built our sense of identity around a job. You know, we say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I think we've, we've got to change that narrative now. Uh, David, congratulations on your new book. It's called The Power of Us, How We Connect act and innovate together uh before we went live uh we were talking about how you wrote that book and finished it in january and then uh and then all of a sudden we we found ourselves in the middle of a global pandemic and that set off a uh this this wonderful terrifying uh four-month period where you had uh, the opportunity to do a quick update but it, it really feels like a book that was written for um, for this period of time. I I, I love this. Um, I want to read a couple sentences from your your introduction because you said uh, that even before, but especially during uh, the pandemic, that you noticed a wave of self-determined, self-organizing activism. The power of us is sweeping over all aspects of our lives. Users of products and services are no longer passively consuming. They're rewriting rules that shape our lives, not least the rules that determine how we're governed. So you go on and talk about uh, smart organizations, smart countries are becoming people powered. Um, so I'd love to um, lean into the, maybe you could tell us the story of the, the update and the realization that you you had come to this beautiful conclusion that felt more true than ever. Did that happen in January? Uh, I guess a little later than that. It was February. Yeah. I was doing a training tour in Australia in February and, and, you know, like many other freelancers around the world, suddenly, you know, gigs started to get canceled and I thought maybe I should just get home. Um, and, and it was in that journey home from Australia back to the UK um, which took longer than anticipated, um, that I just thought, this is this is too big to ignore. You know, it would have been like writing a book in 1944 and not mentioning the war. So, right. so I just thought, okay, we're, we're just going to have to to rewrite. And then what I saw kind of underlined, I think, what, what, what had already been happening. Um, and, and you're right to, to point that out, Dan. This this didn't begin with COVID, but but it 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 certainly accelerated it. You know, as recently as what twenty I think it was twenty eighteen, 
the then governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, talked about the coming, what he called the artisanal economy. You know, that, that we would find an audience for our talent, which might be small, it might be distant, it might be through the internet, but that increasingly he predicted that, you know, there would be a return to some of those traditional crafts and, you know, the explosion of craft beer, artisanal, you know, bread, all of that, I think, has, has reinforced that, uh, that concept that actually to share what we knew, but now we're sharing what we make. And I think the really potentially exciting part of this is could we share what we made at scale? Because historically, the things that have always stopped us from doing that have been, you know, access to capital and access to the means of production. Now we've got peer-to-peer lending services and we've got 3D printers for under $500. So the, I, I suspect that what we'll see over the next 10 years will be a growth in cooperatives and some of it will be, you know, edgy. What we're seeing, and there's a chapter in the book that I talk about citizen scientists who are doing some remarkable things and perhaps some people would rather that they didn't, but the truth is that because of the open learning revolution, that knowledge is out there. So the the point I make in the book is these user innovators who are everywhere, 54% of all new products and services were developed by the users, not the producers. So they're out there. Let's work with them. Let's not try to to compete against them. The uh, first chapter of The Power of Us is on context, and it's one of the best summaries of what the heck is happening in the world right now uh, that I've seen. So I I really, really appreciate that. Part two, um, chapter two dives into scalable learning. Um, Maybe you could summarize what you mean by that. Yeah, it's it's a part of a quote from John Hagel when he talked about the shift in in business from scalable efficiency, you know, getting stuff made as cheaply and as effectively and quickly as possible to now scalable learning, you know, because organizations have got to be agile and adaptable. And right. I've I still find it astonishing. I, I was something popped up on my social media feed, Heather McGowan, who I, I quoted in the book, she said she'd been approached by a CEO who said, I, I need to have some evidence that learning is useful as an organization that will get a return on the investment. And Heather wrote, I'm sorry, I can't help you. If you, if you haven't worked that out yet, the, yeah. the importance of learning, it's too late for you and I can't help you. You, I think you make the argument that it might be the only sustainable uh, competitive advantage of being able to learn more and faster than, than your competitors. And, and some of the, what was interesting for me, it was almost a kind of acid test of the, the, the people that I'd already you know, researched and visited and spoken to, it, how they then kind of turned on a sixpence uh, during the pandemic, so uh, little what, what what used to be a little craft brewery in Scotland, Brewdog, um, they suddenly found themselves facing liquidation, and they turned their distillery into making hand sanitizers. They turned their right. vehicles into delivering meals for those people who were sheltering, and it was a kind of affirmation that 
the, the companies that are going to survive are the ones who can adapt to these kind of black swan events and, and, and go with the, the unpredictability of the modern world. Chapter three really gets to the, the heart of the book. It's on people-powered innovation. What, what, what does that term mean? Well, it, it, it really boils down to the fact that I think what we're seeing now is, uh, and, and I put it in three particular contexts, whether it's people who are advocating for new products and services, and I include Greta Thunberg and the, the March for Life uh, kids in Florida, who are, well, they're not kids, who are, who, who've done such amazing work, or whether it was the ACT UP you know, movement uh, at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. So that's one. Then there are those people who are the tinkerers and the makers who, uh, and Yvonne Schoenard in Patagonia is a classic example of that, you know, a rock climber who decided that he could make a better product himself. So he started to do that just for a few friends and then gradually it kind of evolved. And then there's the people, I guess, who, who make stuff from scratch. Uh, and it, in, in those three areas, we've seen a remarkable um, effectiveness of, of grassroots uh, networked organizations. So we've seen, for example, more social movements in the past 10 years than we've seen in any decade for the past 200 years. Um, and, you know, you only have to look at the success of things like Black Lives Matter to realize that, you know, we are now much smarter at, at, uh, at advocating for social change, but we also, the smart businesses are the ones who are working with their users, like Procter & Gamble did in Connect and Develop, where they're saying to people, if you've got an idea, come and work with us. Let's, let's share it. And, and, and I think they are the organizations that are going to thrive over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and the ones who, well, frankly, who have the Apple philosophy of we just make a product and it's the best product you'll come across. So that's it. Take it or leave it. I don't think they're going to be around. The second part of the book is on mindsets. Uh, you talk about two mindsets. What, what are those? Yeah, it's, it's a crude way to divide the world up. But, but I, I found that the only way I could explain the, the importance of understanding what, what goes on with these small groups, you know, and, and, and they are everywhere. A thousand Facebook self-help groups during the first week in the UK of, of the pandemic, you know, and they just sprung up overnight. We have to understand that mindset. And I said there are, you could roughly divide the world into users and producers. And most people who work in large-scale organizations would have to be classed as producers. Often, the, the people who founded that organization would have started off as users, uh, as, as Apple did. You know, the two Steves were tinkerers, they were hackers, they were part of a, an open source community, the Homebrew Computing Club, but they made that shift across and they became producers. And the point I make in the book is that over time, the, the user mindset tends to get squeezed out of organizations and the producer mindset dominates. And I'm not making a value judgment that one's better than the other. I think we need to have both. Um, and the point I made in the book was that, you know, five years ago, I, I had a serious health scare where, you know, I nearly died of, of sepsis. And at that point, I want the producer mindset. You know, when I'm in the emergency theater, 
I don't want people saying, has anybody got any novel ideas what we do with this guy? No, I want that producer mindset. But if it's only the producer mindset, then it seems to me we're missing out on the, that, what I call mass ingenuity that people possess and we're not drawing it into the company and we're not benefiting from it. The, the next section of the book talks about the operating system. It's a shorthand way of describing how an organization works, the culture, the structure, uh, the systems that collectively either I inhibit innovation or enable innovation. Uh, maybe you could quickly describe how organizations either block innovation or uh, how they can promote it. Yeah, well, it... <laughs> It seems to me that um, in, in some of our more innovative organizations, a lot of the things that we'd held as sacred for so long, like the hierarchies, like the job description, the person specification, they're all being ripped up. And I think that's, that's a challenge for a lot of organizations. Um, but, but, you know, the, the, the kind of buzzword now is holacracy the flattening of, of organizations and the, the move towards working in very flexible teams. And I think that's just a response to the need for, you know, constant innovation within organizations. So I think that operating system, if, if you can have great users that you're tapping into, but if you've got a, a clunky operating system, you're not really going to be able to build the kind of culture that, that, that you're going to need to thrive. Uh, part four talks about leadership. Um, you, you argue that it requires very different kind of leadership to uh, to enable bottoms up innovation. T tell us about what that leadership looks like. Well, you know, it's become something of a cliche now to talk about servant leadership, but but nevertheless, it represents that shift from the the kind of ego-driven CEO at the head of the organization to to a, a different kind of approach to leadership, which is actually going to ensure that um, innovation comes up from the bottom. And, and I, it, it was a painful section for me to write because I had to reflect on my own experiences as a as a leader. Of I, I was in a, a, a college where I had about 100 academic staff, and I was... I was the CEO who had a million ideas before breakfast. And I'd come in, you know, and I'd say, I think we should try and do this. And after a while, people stopped having their own ideas because they thought, oh, he's going to come in and tell us what we're doing. So what's the point? You know, and uh, Gary Ridge, the, the CEO of WD40 Company, who you know, I spent a, a full day with, and, and it, was, it was remarkable to see his approach to leadership. And Gary has this doll that he keeps uh, on, on his sofa, and he calls it Al, uh, the soul-sucking CEO. And when I asked him to explain what he meant, he, he just said, well, Al is there to remind me that empathy has to come before ego. If you're leading an organization through ego, then you're not going to get very far. And I think that that is the big shift. And it's also true. And I think the tech companies have kind of helped um, – change those attitudes. But it's, it's true that we, we've got to look at the millennials who are either going to be buying the products or the talent that we're seeking. And we have to recognize that for them, it isn't about you know, making a fast track through the organization. It's about 
keeping a, a good work-life balance. It's about working for an organization whose values and ethics you can, you can believe in. Uh, and that's been a big shift. And I, it seems to me that those two things have come together. And I say, instead of thinking about servant leadership, maybe we should be thinking about the CEO as the lead learner of the organization who models the kind of learning that he or she wants to see in the organization. I love that. Uh, part five in the book is a great toolkit. Um, it's got a couple of great sections. I'll ask you to pick one of these. You have one on uh, trust and transparency. You have another one on engagement and equity. Um, if, if we dove into that toolkit, um, t tell us about one of those sections and the kind of tips and uh, protocols that we'd find there. Yeah, well, maybe I should just take a step back and, and explain that for me, you know, I'd spent, and, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, Tom, where I'd spent maybe best part of 10 years being asked by organizations to come in and in inverted commas, make their people more creative. Our people don't, don't really seem to have many good ideas. And, you know, you do the day long or two day workshops and at the end of it, the walls would be filled with post-it notes. And I would always reach the same conclusion. And I'd say to people, there's nothing wrong with your people. They're, they're as creative as anybody else, but you, you have to give them the culture whereby that ingenuity can thrive. And so I started looking at it and I used a kind of horticultural reference, which is instead of top-down stimulation, you know, in terms of soil. I'm a keen gardener, so this was a, a metaphor that I could relate to. But instead of feeding it from the top, then can we create a growing medium for ideas, which means that they're going to come up from the bottom. And for me, there were eight elements to that growing medium. And, and I had to use the, the acronym TEAM because when you reach my age, you need to find ways of being able to remember this stuff. So trust and transparency were two, the first two, without which I think, you know, we're really struggling. If I think without trust, you're not at the races. But the others were engagement and equity. And, you know, again, we saw over, over the past recent months that equity has become the driving force for many organizations. Then agency and autonomy. And then finally, mastery and, and meaning. And it seems to me that how we um, create that culture that, that foregrounds these qualities is, is not just vital for, for our own survival as organizations, but frankly, the light bulb moment for me, I think I was in the US and it was coming towards the end of the book and I was trying to put this stuff together and I was thinking of these eight characteristics and then it, the kind of penny dropped and I just thought, yeah, the reason why we, we seek these in the organizations that we're working for is that largely they're absent in, in, in society. And, and we've seen the erosion of trust now. This, this year, 2020, has, has been the lowest year for trust in government or in our media or in our institutions and so on. I could go through all eight of them. It seems to me that they are the, the qualities or characteristics that as a society, we're either, they're either in decline or they're absent. And so I think it's no surprise that the more innovative organizations are, are, are putting those into the foreground. And as a result, they're able to fully tap into the power of us. Uh, 
David, if the future is really about people working together to make a difference in the world, it seems like that has some big implications for our schools. Um, If you're talking, I know you work with a lot of school groups around the world. What's your advice to to a school head about how, how could they incorporate some of these ideas into their school? Yeah, great question. And this week I, I did a workshop with some people in Ireland, um, online, obviously. And uh, we, we talked about that context, you know, that I started the book with, but also the, the bit that follows that context, which is how, how is that affecting us as human beings? You know, because we've seen this, this um, rise in, in self-harm and, and depression amongst our young people. And, and I, I said, I felt that if you look forward, and this is hard, I think, for schools and colleges, but you have to look forward 10, 15, 20 years. And I said, if, if we had to summarize what a school should be about, I think there are two things right now. Um, one should be developing what I call a pedagogy of agency. So can we ensure that these young people can, can feel in control of their lives and can make a difference in the world. And the second thing, which which really came as a result of the pandemic, um, was to say that I think there's an opportunity for schools and colleges now to be the, the restorers of community. You know, some of our communities now in the UK have been fractured. They're going to be experiencing mass unemployment. And it seems to me to be almost the sacred duty of a school to say, we're not just here to get our kids through the next, jump through the next hoop of the exams, but we, we, we are here to develop and build our communities. So I think those two things in terms of agency and community is what I believe schools should be focused upon. I love that idea, David. And this idea of agency and community don't have to be extracurricular activities. It sounds like you could, schools could organize many of their learning tasks as part of engaging the community, uh, encouraging and empowering young people to work together to make a difference in their community, uh, and incorporating their study of um, maths and English uh, and the natural world in the act of making a difference, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I make the point in that um, chapter that you've mentioned where I I highlight about six or seven schools. I mean, you know, the list could go on, but, but they're schools that I think are, are, are making their, their students to be change makers of the future, but it's not at the expense of the, the academic outcomes. These students are still getting fantastic academic outcomes. If you look at the Liga Leadership Academy in Phnom Penh, you know, they're doing remarkable things. Right now, as we speak, they're preparing to launch Cambodia's first ever satellite. You know, you talk about agency. Well, it's, it's there. But at the same time, they're being, you know, made offers at some of the, 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 the right. big Ivy League uh, colleges in the U.S. So they, they, it's not an either or. Too often we've seen this as a binary choice. And it's not. Right. David, we featured uh, Liger in our new book called Difference Making at the Heart of Learning. Great. Uh, we also featured uh, our friend Larry Rosenstock from High Tech High. Yep. Um, we think for 20 years, um, Larry and that team has done a great job of engaging young people in community-connected project-based learning that makes a 
you know, that's important to them and to their community. I, I know you're a fan of high tech yeah. eye as well. Yep. No, I've, I've been visiting the high tech eye for what, 12 years and working with, uh, Larry and Rob Reed and, and they, they, it seems to me they, they were at the vanguard of, of really developing our concept of what deeper learning looks like. Uh, David, we're both uh, advisors to the Mastery Transcript Consortium. Why is their work important to you? Well, I, yeah, I have to couch this in very personal terms. About, I guess it would be three years ago now, I was feeling really frustrated um, you know, we've had 10 years of, of, a, of a conservative government in the UK that have, have actually been boasting about the fact that they want to take schooling back to how it was in the 1950s. Not embarrassed at all about that. And there have been successive attempts by, you know, progressive people to, to, to say there's a different narrative that we can tell. And I was part of that. And my my great friend and and sadly uh, recently passed Ken Robinson got involved in a thing that I was calling education forward and we had this conference we launched a book and at the end of it I said to people okay we're going to need some pledges now we've got to take this forward so what one thing could you focus in on and and of course I had to ask myself and I hadn't really done that but you know. It's exhausting when you, you, no one can change your whole system. And I just thought, well, given that however many years I've got left, I need to focus in on something. And in that 30 minutes of thinking, what can I write on this pledge card? I, I realized that for me, the, the key to unlocking some of these more conservative approaches to learning is to, to, to eliminate standardized testing. And so, I wrote it on the pledge card and I thought, so what do I do? And I was looking around at other models and I came across Scott Looney and, and what he was doing at the Mastery Transcript um, Consortium. And I just thought, this, this may not be the model, but it's certainly one of the ways forward that, that would truly reflect and tell the story of a young person's talents and achievements in ways that you know, the, the GPA can never do, or in, in Australia, it's ATAR, you know, and you get a single figure. What does that tell you about their leadership abilities, their, their, the, the way that they collaborate with others? So I reached out to Scott and said, you know, this is a great US initiative, but it, it could be a global initiative. And it's been thrilling for me to see as, a, as a, an advisor that these ideas are now spreading around the world rapidly. I appreciate your support uh, for our listeners. It's mastery.org. It's a group of 336 schools, uh, some of the best schools in, in America and around the world that uh, have banded together to help young people tell their story in a more fuller, um, in a fuller and more, more compelling way. So thanks for supporting that. Uh, just as we wrap up, David, um, you have a, a beautiful summary um, of the power of us uh, that, that I want to share. It says, um, we're witnessing the emergence of ordinary people working together to solve big problems in all aspects of our society, rooted in the communal desire to make the world a better place. And then you give examples of, of students in uh, organizing these mass protests, of 
schools, achieving great outcomes, um, committing to diversity and connecting their kids to, uh, to, to local problems, uh, co-ops that are uh, generating renewable energy. Um, just it's such a, an inspiring book at, a, at such a difficult time where we're facing these cascading crises. Your book doesn't ignore those. It really describes in a lot of detail the pain and suffering that's going on, but it's such a powerful, positive message uh, of people coming together to make a difference. It's one that we, we deeply appreciate, feels important and timely. Thanks for your, uh, thanks for your book, David. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's very kind of you to say that. It's, uh, it's an important book. Uh, everybody should read it. If you're a school head, if you lead an organization, um, if you're a young person trying to thinking about your way forward, I think for all of you, the power of us uh, is a terrific and timely message. Um, Tom, could I just say one thing uh, about please. closing, which is at, at the end, I was, I was searching for a phrase that could sum up this, the, the opportunity of this moment. And <laughs> ironically, I went back to a Brit who ended up being a key figure in, in, in American history, Thomas Paine. Um, and this phrase that he coined where he said, the time has found us. And of course, he was talking about the American independence movement at the time. But, but I also reflected, my father fought in the Second World War. He was part of the greatest generation. He, he's the first one to admit they didn't think of themselves as the greatest generation. They had no choice. They, they had this crisis that they just had to find a way through. I think for our young people now, they could be the greatest generation. They, they could be the, the people who take these problems that, that have been building for decades and they help us rethink the world. And, and I genuinely hope that the time has found them. What a great place to close. David Price, uh, author of The Power of Us, thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks so much, Tom. I've really enjoyed the conversation. A big thanks to David for joining us on this week's episode. We appreciate his important leadership and prescient books. For more information on purpose and working together, check out episode 208 with Esther Wojcicki on how to raise successful people. And in case you missed it, Tom's newest book, Difference Making at the Heart of Learning, co-authored by Dr. Emily Liebtag, is now available. The book takes a close look at schools and organizations that keep purpose-based learning and contribution at the core of what they do. You can find a link to purchase and learn more in the show notes. And if you use code SMART20 at checkout, you'll save 20% on the cover price. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.